Now, friends, in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we have probably the most important chapter in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm sure that some of you are beginning to smile now because I think that I say that about every chapter that we study, that it's the most important one, and it is when we're studying it. But this one is important. The Gospel of Mark is the gospel of action. More of the miracles are given in this gospel than any other. And so we have three outstanding miracles that are here that only could be performed by the hand of omnipotence. For instance, here are the three greatest, if I were permitted to pick them out. The casting out of the demons out of the man living in Gadara among the tombs. And then he heals the woman with an issue of blood, and he raises the little daughter of Jairus. Here we have something that I think is remarkable in this chapter. Now let's notice first here, and I've made this division, Jesus cast demons out of a man in Gadara. And that's the first 20 verses. And then Jesus contacts the woman with an issue of blood who touched him. And 21 to 34, and then Jesus consoles Jairus at the news of his daughter's death, and he goes to raise her from the dead. And that's from 35 through 43, the remainder of the chapter. Now let me say just a word today about demon possession. We promised on several occasions in Matthew and when we began Mark that we'd have something a little bit more detailed to say concerning it. And this is the place, because when we come to this man, and let me read now Mark's description of him, they came over into the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And I think I ought to say something about the Gadarenes. You see, he'd taught on the other side. He'd given these parables. He was weary, and they crossed over. But when they crossed over, why, they were met by this desperate man. But let's notice now, the Gadarenes were the inhabitants of Gadara. And this is the land that was given to the tribe of Gad on the east side of Jordan. You remember, Gad chose the wrong side of Jordan. They were the ones that stayed on the east side. And now we find them in the pig business. You see, when you start away from God, you can just keep going away from him. Now, will you notice this? And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man. Now, he's a human being. That's first of all. Write that down. He's a human being. He's in desperate condition, but he's still a man. And that's what the Lord Jesus saw, a man. In spite of his condition, Jesus saw a man. And his conduct suggests, by the way, that the man was a maniac also. And notice what it says here concerning him. They met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones." Now, notice that this is a desperate case. 
and he's possessed with this unclean spirit. Now will you notice, he dwelt, which means he settled down among the tombs. Here's where he lived. This was his ghetto. And the tombs were unclean places. The dead were there, sometimes bodies exposed. He no longer enjoyed the society of normal men. He lived among the dead. And we find from the other Gospels there was another man, and he was no companion to him. You see, the dead were no company to him. He was alone. But he possessed, we're told here, a superhuman power. They couldn't bind him. And just because a man, friends, demonstrates power, which is not natural, that doesn't prove that God gave it. This case is a typical example. He was a wild man, and no one could bind him. Now we read here that he was miserable. He suffered great physical harm, which he did to himself. He's a creature of pathos and pity, and on the human plane, he's a hopeless case, crying out. He's inarticulate. What an awful condition, and all due to demon possession. We're told here, but when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. That's the man that worshipped him, not the demons. And cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God, most high? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. And he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Now will you notice, this man, not the demons, worshipped Jesus. He was afraid of Jesus. He suffered, I think you'd call it spiritual schizophrenia, a split personality. Sometimes it's the man, and sometimes it's the demon speaking. And in verse 7, we find that literally it is, what is there to me and thee? What have we in common, you see, this poor man possessed by demons? Now, Jesus commanded the demons to come out. And before they came out, Jesus asked the man his name. And I want you to notice that. He cried with a loud voice here in verse 7, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High? Verse 8, For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And notice that, but it's not bad grammar. It says, my name, that seems to indicate the man was trying to speak, but the demons took over and said, we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there were nigh unto the mountain a great herd of swine feeding, and all the demons besought him, saying, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out, entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. There were about 2,000, and they were choked in the sea. Now, this is something that's tremendous that's being given to us here. And the demons made a very peculiar request. They preferred swine to the abyss. And the permission of Jesus has been, as you well know, severely criticized by the liberals. Their objection has been that he would not destroy the swine as the gentle Jesus wouldn't do things like that. That's nonsense, of course. I was having breakfast in Chicago with a man who had 
gone into liberalism, and I'd known him in school, and he'd been sound then, and he was talking about, you know, you think Jesus was one of the flower children, and the way he described him and all that sort of thing. And he used this illustration. He didn't believe Jesus would destroy swine, and he thought that was terrible. Well, to begin with, these people, of course, shouldn't have been in the pig business. The Mosaic law forbade it. And then this fellow, I reminded him about the fact that there were 2,000 pigs destroyed here, and apparently there were more pigs than that destroyed at the time of Noah. And the interesting thing, we were having breakfast together, and he had bacon. <laughs> oh, my. May I say to you, I said to him, I said, I wish the little piggy was here that you were eating part of him this morning to tell you what he thinks of you, for you weep like the walrus and the carpenter. And you remember, they just kept on eating the oysters, though. They wept because there was a lot of sand, but not because they were eating the oysters. They wept for the wrong thing. And I think we have a lot of that type of thinking about us today. Now let me come back and say something about this matter of demon possession. First of all, there's several facts concerning demons that need to be stated. Not only Mark, but all of Scripture bears a definite witness to the reality of demons. For those who accept the authority of Scriptures, there must be an acceptance of the reality of demons, their reality. And by the way, we're living in a day right now where we're beginning to see a resurgence and a manifestation of demonism again. I think many illustrations could be given today. Now, the second thing we need to say is they were especially evident during the ministry of Jesus, but they were not confined, of course, to that period. Then the third thing, for some strange reason, they seek to indwell mankind. They seek to manifest their evil nature through human beings, and they're extremely restless. This description is clear. Luke, in his account, says this, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest, and finding none, he saith, I will return unto the house whence I came out. Isn't this not characteristic of all evil, even evil man? There is the restlessness of seeking expression of the evil nature. Good spirits never seek to take possession of man. The Holy Spirit is the one exception, and he only indwells believers. But as truly as he indwells believers, demons can possess the unsaved, but they could not possess the saved. We're told, greater is he that's in us, the Holy Spirit, than he that's in the world, Satan. And therefore, a child of God could not be demon-possessed. Now, another thing we should say, the fourth thing, in this incident, the demons would rather go into a herd of swine than into the abyss. That's interesting. And then the fifth thing, they should be called demons and not devils. And there's only one devil, and our translation, of course, is faulty, and I made the change as I read. They're called unclean spirits because of their nature. And then the sixth thing, Scripture does not give us the origin of them at all. And anything I would say today would be highly speculative. The seventh thing is there seems to be many of them. The eighth thing is they are under the control of Satan. Now, I said I would not speculate, but 
here I go. I'm of the opinion that the fall of Satan, these were the angels that followed him. Now, having said that, let's not say any more. And the ninth thing we should say is their purpose is the final undoing of man. They are certainly working on Satan's program. The tenth thing we should say is there are present-day examples of demon possession. We've mentioned that before. We could offer many illustrations of that. We have Satan worship right here in Southern California. And there are a lot of college students and professors that are in it. And they say they find reality in it. I think they do, by the way. I think Satan's prepared to give reality to those who will worship him. But what kind of reality do you find? No, that is the important thing. Then the eleventh and final thing is the Lord Jesus Christ has power over demons. And that, I think, is the great lesson for us to learn. There's no reason for any believer to be afraid of demons or to adopt some superstitious or spooky notion concerning them. If you feel like that you are bothered with them, then just ask the Lord Jesus to deliver you. They have been cast out in his name. And it's a lack of faith for you to walk in fear today of them. And it means that you certainly need a little counseling if you got to the place where you think that they can control you in any way or possess you or direct you. There's a very lovely poem written by Joseph H. Odell about this. And you know that the people of Gadara came and asked the Lord Jesus to leave their coasts. And the reason it was they'd rather have swine than have him. And that's a rather heart-searching question for the present day, because there are a lot of people who would rather have other things that are just as bad as pigs than to have Christ. Listen to this poem now. Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest man, we swine. Oh, get thee hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine, his soul. What care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole, since we have lost our swine? And Christ went sadly. He had wrought for them a sign of love and hope and tenderness divine. They wanted swine. Christ stands without your door and gently knocks. But if your gold or swine the entrance blocks, he forces no man's hole. He will depart and leave you to the treasure of your heart. No cumbered chamber will the master share, but one swept bare of cleansing fires, then plenish fresh and fair with meekness and humility and prayer. There he will come, yet coming even there, he stands and waits and will no entrance win until the latch be lifted from within. What a remarkable incident this is. It reveals his power. Now we have here the Lord Jesus healing this woman with an issue of blood and then connected closely with it is the raising of the daughter of Jairus. Now let me read verse 21. And when Jesus was passed over again, now he returns back to his land by ship. Unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. 
And behold, I cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet, besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him, and thronged him, and a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians. Dr. Luke, who was a physician, said she couldn't be healed. But Mark says that she'd suffered many things of the physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. You see, this matter of medical expense being so great today is not new at all. Verse 27, "...when she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole." And then you have this incident of the fact he says, "...who touched me?" And the disciples said, "...who touched you?" Well, the whole crowd was here, touched you. But only one touched him in faith for healing. He's like that today. I think we got a lot of folk. There are some of us call them the Jesus boys. They're running around saying today, yes, it's Jesus this and Jesus that, and they use his name. And somebody says, well, they certainly know him. Well, they've touched him, but not like this woman touched him. She touched him for healing. And she had been in this condition 12 years. And do you notice that the little girl was 12 years old? Twelve years of suffering coming to an end and twelve years of light entering darkness now, the darkness of death. And I think the father who had come saw our Lord talking to this woman, dealing with her, and he says, Oh, why doesn't he hurry? Doesn't he know that my little girl is so sick at home and that she'll die unless he moves? Well, our Lord purposely did not move. He healed this woman. And then while he's dealing with her, that incident is transpiring. A servant came from the home of this ruler of the synagogue and whispered to him. And what he said to him was this, You just let the master alone. No use talking to him. The little girl is dead. And the Lord Jesus said, Well, only believe. And now he goes to the home. And there were those there who didn't believe, and they had them put out, you will recall. And when they were put out, why, then he went in. And it says, verse 41, "...he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumi," which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And I still think that Talitha kumi. It was an expression in the Aramaic that the little girl would have understood. It was her native tongue. I think it could be translated like this, little lamb, wake up. That's what he said to her. And that's a sweet, lovely thing. I don't know about you. You'll find our Lord raised a little girl, a man of middle age, that is in the vigor of young manhood, the widow's son of Nain, and then an elderly man, a senior citizen, a Lazarus. And he raised them all the same way he spoke to them. But this little girl represents the little folks, the ones, I think, before they reach the age of accountability. And he said to her in this lovely way, wake up, little lamb. And I know right now I'm speaking to a lot of folk that have lost little ones. I found that out when we lost our first little one, and what a sad thing it was for us. And it's wonderful to me to know that one of these days 
He's going to speak again, and he'll say, little lamb. He'll be talking to my little lamb and to your little lamb, and he'll say, wake up. Wake up, little lamb, and we'll have them someday. What a beautiful, wonderful thing this is. It's a demonstration of his power. We are told here in verse 42, straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. He charged him straightly that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. And isn't that practical? What do you think about a twelve-year-old girl, a boy for that matter, when they are waked up from sleep and now made well? What do they want to do? They want to eat. He said, feed the little one. How practical this is and how wonderful it is. Here are these three great miracles that, to my judgment, demonstrate the great message of the gospel of Mark, that he's God's servant and with God's power. And he's a man of action, and he's come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And here you have him in this chapter here doing three wonderful things. He casts out demons out of the man in Gadara. He heals the woman with an issue of blood, and he raises this little daughter of Jairus, a little twelve-year-old girl. Now, as we come today to the sixth chapter of Mark, we find that the Lord Jesus makes a return visit to Nazareth, and he sends out the twelve to preach, and they report back to him. Then he feeds the 5,000, he walks on the water, he heals in the land of Gennesaret. And then we have the incident that had taken place previously to the incidents recorded in this chapter of John the Baptist, who had been murdered by Herod to please Herodias. Now we read, beginning with verse 1. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things, and what wisdom is this which is given unto him? that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. And then their reaction there in Nazareth is this. Verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended of him. Now, this incident that is here has been put down by the side of the fourth chapter of Luke. And the critic likes to say that you have here a contradiction in the Bible, that you have two accounts that conflict one with the other. Well, the fact of the matter is you have the record of two visits that our Lord made to his hometown of Nazareth. And I would like to say that I think he probably made other visits to Nazareth, but these are the two that are recorded. Now, in Luke 4, you have the first visit. And when he returned back there, he was alone. 
But here you find in verse 11 that his disciples were with him, and he gives them that commission there. And on his first visit, there was no miracle performed. And here we're told he healed a few sick folk. And at his first visit, he left suddenly when they tried to kill him. And here, Matthew tells us that he remained in this area. On both occasions, however, he entered the synagogue and taught. And on both occasions, he was rejected by his fellow townsfolk. And we find here, therefore, that you do not have a conflict, but two records of two visits that he made to his hometown. The first time he left, went down to Capernaum, made that his headquarters. And again, he wanted to reach his hometown. In verse 1, when it says here his own country, it's literally his fatherland. It's what it literally means. And it was the custom of our Lord to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, wherever he was. I think he felt the need to worship God in this way. And also it was the place to reach the people of that day. Now his teaching amazed those who had known him. His words, his works and wonders, likewise occasioned a consternation on the part of his fellow citizens here. You see, they raised the question. They actually did not believe that Nazareth could produce anyone like Jesus. And as they looked at themselves, and they were judging, of course, Nazareth by themselves, and Nazareth hadn't done too well by them, they just figured that they couldn't be one like the Lord Jesus. And they had no faith in one of their own, and likewise... They had no faith in themselves. And this passage also reveals that Mary had other children. They were half-brothers and sisters of Jesus. And I think the Jude that's mentioned here is evidently the author of the epistle of Jude. And they were scandalized because of him. They thought they knew him. And, of course, this was their stumbling stone. I think there's a danger today of getting familiar with Jesus. He is one that you don't get familiar with at all. And that was their problem. They thought they knew him, and they did not. They had been familiar with him. They had seen him as a boy grow up in the town. Now you'll notice here in verse 4, "...but Jesus said unto them a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house." And I think the common colloquialism of the day is apropos right here. An expert is an ordinary fellow from another town. We always think that if whoever it is comes from afar, they know more than our crowd knows. And that's, I guess, maybe the reason some of us go up and down and through the country ministering elsewhere. I think sometimes many of us are more effective away from home than we are at home. Now, you'll notice, though, what happens, and he could there, this is verse 5, he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them, 
and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. So you see that he did not leave this area at this time, but stayed in the area. Now, the first time, he was practically run out of town, went down to Capernaum, made that his headquarters. Now, this is a remarkable passage, however, that he couldn't perform there any mighty work because of their unbelief. You know, the only limitation to omnipotence is unbelief. Faith is the one requirement to release the power of God in salvation. And that great chapter, Isaiah 53, that reveals God's so great salvation, the prophet in verse 1 opens with this, "...who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed?" Who will believe it? Well, if they don't, my friend, you've shut off the power of God, of omnipotence. You see, unbelief insulated and isolated the power of God, and it does that today. Now, verse 6 here, he marveled because of their unbelief. And you'll notice that, and we've called attention to this before, that on two occasions he marveled. Once he marveled at the unbelief that we see here, and then in the incident in Matthew 8, verse 10, of the faith of the centurion, he marveled at his faith. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And the thing that should interest us here, and this expression we're apt to pass it by, it seems so inconsequential, and he went round about the villages teaching. And here is a wonderful lesson today for some Christian workers, we have discovered that there are certain men in God's work that do not want to go to a small place to minister. They want the big places, and they want to go to the big places. I've actually been criticized by ministers and by Christian workers of why do you go to certain small churches? Why don't you go to this church and that church? Well, very candidly, I've made a rule of trying to accept invitations as they come in, and any minister that I have held a meeting for across this country will tell you. I never asked him when I came how biggest church was. I never asked him even whether he was going to even give me an offering or not, or even pay expenses. I never have an understanding along that line because I feel that that's something that I should not do. Now, that doesn't mean other men shouldn't do it. That's their business, but this happens to be my business. And my feeling is that our Lord set us a tremendous example here when it says that he went about their villages. Imagine, friends, the Lord of glory, the Son of God here on this earth. He could send a telegram over to Rome and say, get the Colosseum for me. I'm coming over to have a big meeting. I'm afraid today that we have some men that are suffering from megalomania. They feel like they have to have a big crowd. 
May I say to you that we need to learn, and all of us need to learn that. I remember years ago hearing the story about Dr. Schofield of the Schofield Bible. He was invited to speak in a church over North Carolina, and a young preacher that night was apologizing to him because he only had just a handful out. It had rained that night, and he had about 20, 25 people. And he leaned over and said to Dr. Schofield, I apologize for this small crowd out to hear you preach and teach. And Dr. Schofield said to this young man, you know, he said, my Lord only had 12 men in his school and in his congregation most of the time. And if he had 12, who is C.I. Schofield to talk about a big crowd? Well, my friend, that's a tremendous thing. And I call attention to that here and probably ought not to in our Through the Bible program because there's so many tremendous things in this chapter. But some of them we've been over before, and I'll just hit some high points now. When you come here to verses 7 through 13, the 12 he sends out now, and their message is repentance. They are to go out and give the message as he has been giving it out. And he tells them here, he called unto him the 12. He began to send them forth by two and two. And Matthew didn't tell us that, by the way, and neither does Luke when they record this incident, that they went out two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits. And that seemed to be the very highest power they could exercise. And commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. And why that? Well, they were to travel light. This is to indicate the urgency and the lightness of the hour and the importance of their mission and that they were totally dependent on God. Now, later on, they were told to take these things because they were going on a longer journey than they made at this time. Matthew makes it clear they only went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they weren't, though, to accept the hospitality that was offered to them. He said unto them, In whatsoever place ye enter into a house, there abide till you depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So that this is to be a serious and solemn trip thereon, and light creates responsibility, and to reject the grace of God invited his judgment. It does the same thing today. And they went out and preached that man should repent. And they cast out many demons, anointed with oil many that were sick, and healed them. Now, they preached a message of repentance. And the miracles authenticated their message. And this commission was limited to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not the pattern for today. Repentance is part of the gospel message. However, 
It's contained in the command to believe. And now we find here in verse 14, we have that incident of Herod who had put to death John the Baptist. And I went into that in a little detail back in Matthew, you'll recall. And actually, it's a longer record there. The fame of Jesus, you see, had spread throughout that area, not only among the common people, but even Herod on the throne had heard. And this was a strange reaction of King Herod. The record of the murder of John the Baptist had taken place sometimes before the other things that are recorded here took place. And I think this explains Herod's strange and superstitious reaction here. Now, will you notice it? And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show for themselves in him. And this man is very superstitious, as you can see. And others said that it's Elias, and others said that it's a prophet, or as one of the prophets. There was a great deal of mingled reaction toward the Lord Jesus and who he was. And there's that same reaction today, by the way. We find that different people have different viewpoints of it. And these other people, they had a different explanation for the person and the presence and the power of the Lord Jesus. And there was this confusion, as you can see. Now, Herod definitely was afraid, notice. But when Herod heard, therefore, he said, "'It's John whom I beheaded, and he's risen from the dead.'" Now, that incident is given. We went over it in Matthew of how Herodias had her daughter to dance before him, and she knew what a lecherous, a lustful old man he was. And on that basis, why, he gave her a blank check. She could ask anything she wanted. And so the mother was prepared and asked for the head of John the Baptist. And actually, this record here, Mark makes it very clear that Herod liked John the Baptist and had heard him. And, of course, John the Baptist had condemned him for taking Herodias, who was not his wife at all, but his brother's wife. And that they were living in sin and so on. And as a result, why, she naturally hated him, wanted to get rid of him. And this was her diabolical plot in order to accomplish that. Now we come down to verse 30. The apostles have been out now, and they come back and report. Verse 30, And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. It's impossible for us to really understand how busy and how great the demands were upon him. He had to withdraw in order to rest and take his apostles there. And now we have the record here of the feeding of the 5,000. All four gospel writers record this. And I have dealt with it very casually in Matthew, 
I'm going to pass over it here in Mark. And when we get to John's gospel, I'll go into detail and bring up many things that are here. Now you have also the incident we had in Matthew of him walking on the water to come to them. And this is a very wonderful thing. We saw it in detail in Matthew. And we find here no record about Simon Peter coming to him. After all, Mark got his information on the human plane from Simon Peter, and Simon Peter just left out this part of it. But Matthew gives us that. But the one thing that I left out here is in verse 48, he saw them toiling in rowing. There those men were down there that night, mingling their sweat with the waves, the salty waves that were breaking over that little boat as they were straining at the oars, and they actually thought they were going down. But it says he saw them toiling and rowing. And I love that. I don't know where you are today, and I do not know what position you're in. You may be in a hard spot right now. You may be sitting in the corner in the darkness. You may be facing temptations and problems that are too great to bear. You may find yourself out on a stormy sea, and you feel like the little bark, your end's going down. I have some news for you, Christian friend. He saw them toiling and rowing. He sees you. He knows your problem. You don't have to send up a flare to let him know. He knows. Oh, today, that you might commit your way to him in a very definite way. And that is something that many of us need to do in times of darkness, is to just commit our way unto him. He saw them toiling and rowing. And only Mark, by the way, records that. And then we find that he then came to them and he entered into the ship with them. And they were amazed. Mark says, beyond measure. Now we have in the conclusion of this chapter that when he went over to the land of Gennesaret, I'm reading verse 53, and when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret and drew to the shore. When they were come out of the ship straightway, they knew him. Now I want you to listen to this very carefully in conclusion. And ran through the whole region round about, began to carry about in beds those that were sick where they heard he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets, besought him that he might touch, if it were, but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole. You and I today can't even envisage the number of sick people that he had healed. I happen to know that there's one denomination that is offered, I think, a $1,000 if anybody will come forward that had been healed by a faith healer. And I understand that $1,000 has never been taken yet. That's amazing, isn't it, when you hear all this propaganda today that's going around. In Jesus' day, you could have brought together thousands of people that he'd heal. My friend, he was genuine. It was real. And that's the reason the enemy never denied what he did.
Now, this chapter that we're coming to today is much briefer than the last chapter. It had 56 verses, and we frankly had to move fast to cover it. Today, we are in a chapter that has 37 verses, but again, a very important chapter that carries out the theme of Mark, which is to show that the Lord Jesus is God's servant, doing God's will. He's a man of action, and that he is doing the things that would appeal to a Roman of that day and any person who's looking for someone who can get the job done. And that's the wonderful thing about him as a Savior. He can save, and he's the only one who can. We have in this chapter three incidents. First, the Lord Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He casts the demon out of the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman, and he heals the deaf and dumb man. Now, let's look at this for just a moment, this first incident where he rebukes the Pharisees. You will note, and many of you were in that period and have our notes, on Between the Testaments. And during the time of the close of the Old Testament to the opening of the New Testament, you'll note that many things took place. In one sense, this is the most eventful part of the history of the nation Israel. And during this period, and it came about first during the time of their captivity, and then when they returned to the land, there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Herodians. Now, evidently, Ezra was a scribe and probably the founder of that group. Now, the Pharisees rose to defend the Jewish way of life against all foreign influences. They were strict legalists. They believed in the Old Testament, and they were nationalists in their politics. They wanted to bring the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, so into your viewpoint, here to pass on the earth. And the Sadducees, they were made up of the wealthy and the socially minded. Actually, they had very little spiritual depth, none whatsoever. They wanted to get rid of tradition. They rejected the supernatural. They were opposed to the Pharisees who accepted the supernatural and the Old Testament. They were closely akin to the Greek Epicureans, by the way. And then the scribes, they were a group of professional expounders of the law. They obviously go back to Ezra, and they became in our Lord's day hair splitters, and they were more concerned with the letter of the law than with the spirit of the law. That, I think, is one of the great problems that we have today, that there has been put into our laws in this country, this hair-splitting method and the philosophical interpretation that was never intended. I believe that is what comes out of certain law schools in the East. And as a result, our legal system, our political system, is in a mess today in this country. And that is what had happened to religion in our Lord's day. Then there were the Herodians. They were strictly a party to try to keep the Herods on the throne.
Now we find here, as we come to this chapter, that background, let me read. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. Now you'll notice that the impression that our Lord has made on Jerusalem has brought these men out of Jerusalem to the place where he was ministering in Galilee, and also it will take them across the Jordan River into the area of Decapolis, that is, where there were ten cities. We'll see that in a moment. Now, verse 2, "...and when they saw some of the disciples eat bread with defile, that is to say, with unwashing hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders." And when they were come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received a whole as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables. Now let's look at that for just a moment because this is quite interesting, I think, here, that a crisis is arising about the person of Christ or the person of Jesus. The opening statement here reveals, "...then came together unto him the Pharisees, certain of the scribes." And back in chapter 6, at verse 30, we saw that the apostles gathered together unto Jesus and told him all things that they had done. You see, it's coming to a crisis now. He has sent them out. They've come back and reported. And now there's coming out to him, and there's bound to be here a confrontation between the Lord Jesus and his followers, and the Pharisees and their followers. And they were two groups, therefore, coming together around him. The first group was made up of his friends, his followers, and those who loved him. And the second group comprised his enemies who sought to destroy him. It has ever been this way. There are two groups, those who trust him and those who reject him. And that's true today. And very personally, what group are you in? It makes all the difference in the world. It's not whether you're a member of a church or been through a ceremony. What's your relationship to Jesus Christ? That's the thing that's all important. Now, this obviously was a special delegation from Jerusalem, and they were sent to Galilee to spy upon Jesus. Now, they were the intellectual opponents sent to trap the Lord Jesus. And believe me, the way that our Lord defended himself is to me another proof of his deity. Never man spake as he spake. That's the testimony of his enemies. Now, it wasn't difficult for them to find some fault, of course, for Jesus entirely ignored their tradition. Now, what was their tradition? They were actually not criticizing the disciples here for a breach of etiquette. It wasn't Emily Post that was bothering them, but the fact that the Lord was not having them keep the traditions, which was an interpretation of the Old Testament. And this was ceremonial cleansing and hadn't anything to do with a sanitary measure. And Mark explains for the benefit of the Romans that this custom of ceremonial cleansing was peculiar to Israel, and it was. God gave them a great deal about cleansing. 
when we go back, when we finish Mark, we'll go back to Leviticus. And Leviticus is, to my judgment, one of the most important books in the Bible. Now, when we go back there, we're going to find out that cleansing was very important. We'll see why. That God was teaching them a great lesson in that. Now, they have built tradition on that at this time. They had built up a tradition that was supposed to be an interpretation of the Mosaic Law. And actually, some of them contended that Moses had given these traditions when he gave the law. And in time, these traditions became interpretations of the interpretations of the law. And, of course, eventually there was a wide departure from the intent of the law. Now, they had here something that is much in detail. Let's look at it. Verse 4, when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received. The whole is the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. All of this. And it was a burdensome sort of thing, entirely outward. And the word, by the way, for washing is baptism. They baptize cups, pots, religious objects, even beds. Now, this is religion with a vengeance, friends. And you see, you get involved in going through a ritual of religion, and you forget that the whole purpose is that a human being might be made right with God and there should be a relationship established. So many people will argue points of religion when it's the person of Jesus Christ that we should be concerned with. Now, will you notice here in verse 5, Then the Pharisees and scribes ask him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen hands? Now, this accusation that they lodge against his disciples was, of course, really an accusation against him personally, because these were his followers. Now, will you notice how our Lord deals with them? And he doesn't deal with them tenderly at all. He answered and said unto them, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. Now, that's not gentle, I would say. As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. Now, friend, that's a very important statement that he gives. They were just hypocrites, meaning they were acting a part, playing a part. It was the word used for actors on the stage. They were going through a religious ritual without experiencing any reality at all. The lips and the heart might as well have belonged to two separate persons. And they had no more heart experience than a wooden dummy upon the knee of a ventriloquist. My friend, there are a lot of people that are just going through a ritual in church today. The heart must be involved if it's genuine, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. People get involved today in creeds and church confessions and public worship and dress and even our separation. And all of it can become a matter of tradition and not a direct and personal dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And notice as he goes on here, "...how be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of man." Worship is empty when the rules of man are substituted for the Word of God. Now we come to the very heart of the matter. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of man as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. That was the whole thing. They were substituting the traditions of man for the Word of God. Now, actually, a tradition could be good. He said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Now, a tradition may be excellent when it's first given, but it becomes evil if it's a substitute for the Word of God in later generations. And that's what had happened for these people here. And I think that's the reason that so many denominations today have departed from the Word of God. They first substituted a creed for the Word of God, then they began to substitute the Word of man and the thinking of man and their little ritual and their little denomination. And before long, the Word of God went out the window. That's happened again and again. Now he goes on in verse 10 here, and he says, for Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Now he gives them an example of what they were doing. Now, that was what Moses said. They'd honor their father and mother. Now, here's the tradition. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it's Corban. That is to say, a gift of whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which ye have delivered, and many such like things ye do. Now notice what he's saying here. It is a tremendous thing, because their tradition permitted them to escape the responsibility to their parents. And if a man did not want to help his father and mother, when they became old and needy, he would dedicate his possessions to the priests in the temple. And it was called Corban. That means a gift. And at the man's death, his estate went to the temple. And he was relieved of his responsibility to his parents. This tradition... My friend was pernicious, and it contradicted the intent of the law of God, that is, to honor their father and their mother. There is today a great danger of folk giving to that which they've just been appealed to by someone personally. And there are literally thousands of Christian organizations today that have men out in the field. They're just combing the highways and byways finding people to give to an organization. Well, may I say to you that there is a grave danger in that. There are certain personal responsibilities that people have. And I want to be very frank. And we have a radio program here, and we depend on folk. But we haven't anybody out in the field. There'll be nobody coming from this program into the community or the area where there is a pastor in a good church and interview his people. His people will have to give because they want to give, not because they have been appealed to. I think we're in grave danger today. I feel that folks' first responsibility is to a good church that they belong to. 
and that's the only kind of church they ought to belong to. Now, you can see this is tremendous that he's talking about here. Now, I want to move on down because he goes into a great deal of detail here, which is, I think, very important. It all has to do with that which is external and that which is internal, that which is real. And he shows here that religion is not something that you can rub on as you do a salve. It's not something that you eat or refrain from eating. Now, you'll notice, when he entered into the house, they came to him. Verse 18, He saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into his belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man, for from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts. Now, this is what comes out of man. Adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. And I'll guarantee you that if you buy your morning paper... Wherever you live and will read the paper, you'll find out this is what came out of man during the last 24 hours in the world. Adulterers, fornications, murders, and angers murder, you know. Thefts, loafing on the job is stealing. Covetousness, my grasping and greediness for material things and positions today. That's covetousness. And that's what comes out of man. Wickedness, all that, acts that are intended to hurt people. Deceit, that's the pretense that people put up. Lasciviousness is sensuality. Evil eye, that's envy. And slander against God or man is blasphemy. And pride, God hates this above all else, he says. And foolishness, acts done without any respect of God or man. These are the things that come out of the heart of man, and that's the reason the Lord Jesus said, you must be born again. Now we have this incident of the Syrophoenician woman. We've had this before. You'll recall that our Lord went into this country, stepped out of his own land. This woman was a Greek. She was a citizen of Tyre, and she came to Jesus in faith. And the word daughter means it's the diminutive, which means she's just a little girl. And our Lord's treatment of her may appear brutal at first, but you'll remember that in the Gospel of Matthew, you have there the dispensational interpretation, which I think reveals here something that is tremendous, the accuracy of the four Gospels. Now, this is another conspicuous example of the faith of one on the outside. And our Lord answered her petition, and the question arises, did he really come to that area for the specific purpose of answering the faith of this woman? Now, in verse 31, and again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, you see, he's been out of the country now, he came under the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. 
Now, Decapolis is really translated ten cities, and they're in the area near the Sea of Galilee. Now, the list includes the following, Cephopolis, Hippos, Gadara, Pila, Philadelphia, Gereza, Dion, Canatha, Raphana, Damascus. I was at the ruins of Gereza, or Jerish as it's called today. And I thought, my, this is one of the places my Lord came and he taught. And the crowds came in those cities. He had a tremendous ministry in this area. And we're told, and they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers into his ears, and he spit and touched his tongue. And may I say, all these were aids to faith. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said unto him, Epaphatha, that is, be open. And straightway his ears were open, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. He charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it, and were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. And the whole thought here reveals the fact that this was the condition of the man, I think, caused Jesus to use this method. His ears were first opened so that he could hear. And it was apparently useless to try to get the crowd to remain silent now. And this is the miracle that brought a great impetus in enlarging the ministry of the Lord Jesus, which had already broken all bounds. And at this time, pressure upon Jesus was humanly unbearable. And in spite of the pressure put upon him, the burdens of the multitudes, the tension of the times, the long busy days, the weariness of the body, the crowd could say, He hath done all things well. And we just add our word to it and say, we agree with it. He does today all things well. Now, friends, the eighth chapter, as we come to it today, we find out that it is very similar to the last chapter as far as the length is concerned, and it carries out the great theme of Mark, the emphasis is upon action, of what the Lord Jesus did. And that was important to the Romans, and it's important to us today. Is the Lord Jesus able to save to the uttermost? Can he do the job? He's the servant of Jehovah, and we find out that he can. Now, in this chapter, we have the feeding of the 4,000 in the coasts of Decapolis, and we find again the Pharisees are hounding his trail, and they ask for a sign at Dalmanutha. And then the friends of a blind man ask Jesus to touch his eyes at Bethsaida. And then Peter makes his confession of faith in Caesarea Philippi. So you see, he's moving around, friends, and he didn't have a rented Hertz automobile either. And there weren't good highways in that day. He walked. And may I say that he's covering a great deal of ground. That land is a small land, but when you reduce the speed down to walking, it's a pretty good-sized land. Actually, for territory, you would almost make it the size of this nation of ours when you get 
people down to walking. And that's what he did. Now, we have here the feeding of the 4,000 that opens this section. And probably we should spend just a moment here looking at something because some feel that actually the feeding of the 4,000 is a duplication of the feeding of the 5,000 and they practically ignore it. And that's caused someone to say that the feeding of the 4,000 is the neglected miracle of Jesus, and certainly it is. Now, the critic, when he comes to this in his usual fashion, he seeks to rid the Bible of the supernatural. Now, his explanation of this miracle is that it was included after the feeding of the 5,000 to strengthen the claim of the apostles that Jesus was a miracle worker. Well, obviously, if this were true, by the way, the second miracle would be greater than the first miracle. Instead of 4,000, it would be nearly 10,000. And when men exaggerate, they are extravagant and not limited in language. In other words, exaggeration is exaggeration and not restraint. And here, it's restraint, by the way. And frankly, we need to make a contrast between the two miracles. Now, they are strikingly similar in several features. Well, he feeds the thousands. One time it's five, the other it's four. All right? That is certainly similar. And there are seven points of dissimilarity that we need to call your attention to. Now, in the first instance, that is, the feeding of the 5,000, the multitude had been with the Lord one day, and in the feeding of the 4,000, three days. Now, upon that first occasion with the 5,000, the disciples were told to go and see what supplies were available, while upon the other, they were ready with the information before they were asked. And when the 5,000 were fed, there were five loaves and two fishes. And for the 4,000, there are seven loaves and a few fishes. And again, it was near the Passover here. And the multitude was told to sit in companies upon the green grass. That's when he fed the 5,000. While in the other case, in this one here, why, it's farther along in the year. The grass is no longer green and they're told to sit on the ground, literally, on the earth. And in the first instance, the 5,000, our Lord is said to have blessed the loaves. While upon the second occasion, he's said to have given thanks first for the loaves and later to have blessed the fish. After the 5,000 were fed, 12 baskets of fragments remained. But when the 4,000 were satisfied, there were seven baskets over and then, finally, the number that was fed was different in each instance. Now, there is, therefore, a sharp contrast between the two is found, therefore, in the time that Jesus fed the multitudes. In the feeding of the 5,000, it was at the conclusion of the first day. Jesus had been teaching them. But according to John, he followed the feeding of the 5,000 with the discourse of the bread of life. This important discourse was sort of an after-dinner speech, you see. But in the feeding of the 4,000, the multitude had been with Jesus for three days listening to his teaching, and the physical food followed the teaching. In other words, the crowd had not come out to eat but to hear the teaching of Jesus. And I think this is an important lesson, by the way, for us here. 
Are we using church dinners to get the crowd? If so, then our motive is wrong. Many churches can only get people out in the middle of the week to a banquet, and some Bible classes depend upon the food to draw people in for the message. Now, when folk come for the loaves and fishes, they're only rice Christians, and there's no other explanation. Can God bless such efforts regardless of how pure the motive? Well, I'll let you answer. The end does not always justify the means. Now, I think there are other distinctions that are here, and maybe we'll note them as we go along. Let me come now directly to the 8th chapter and begin to read with this background. For him in the coast of Decapolis, Jesus feeds the 4,000. In those days, and that, of course, would be in the days when he was in the area of the Decapolis, the ten cities. The multitude being very great, and don't miss that, the multitudes were following him now. And having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him, and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now been with me three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they'll faint by the way, for divers of them came from far. And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, and brake and gave to his disciples and set before them, and they did set them before the people. That's something I think is quite interesting here, that it looks as if the disciples had forgotten about him feeding 5,000. And I'm of the opinion that many of us have the same experience of having God do some very gracious and good thing for us, and we forgot it by the next time. And when an emergency arose, why, we found ourselves neophytes. That is, it was all brand new to us. I know that's been my experience. I have to have an x-ray made of my lungs to see whether the cancer spread. And every time, it's a new experience to me, and I'm frightened to death, I must confess to you. So I really a fell a feeling for these disciples. Now, they had made an inventory of the crowd, though, and I think they were expecting maybe Jesus to repeat the miracle of the 5,000. There were more loaves this time for fewer people, but it was still true. What are these among so many? And who had the loaves this time? We don't know. Some unknown person did, and maybe he just didn't want us to know that he was there. Someday he'll get his reward. Now, in this instance, they sat on the bare ground, you'll notice. That's what we're told here. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground before it was the grass. I think that's interesting to note that. And how many fish? Well, we're told here they had a few small fish. What difference does it make? The number's unimportant, and he's not counting fish. There's always a surplus, you'll notice, when God's in it, whether it's the 5,000 or the 4,000. And he doesn't give them just a snack, but he gives them a seven-course dinner. And if you added one woman and a child to the number, and I think you should, then you can see that you would have about 12,000 here.
Now we notice here in verse 10, "...and straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples, and he came into the parts of Dalmanutha." Now the location of Dalmanutha cannot be ascertained accurately. Apparently it is on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and they had to cross the sea to get to it, which means they came to the west side, and they went by boat, and evidently was somewhere on the northwest coast. And you notice here, the Pharisees came forth. These bloodhounds of hate were on his trail, and they began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And apparently they approached him on this subject several times. And he left them and entered into the ship again, departing to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, neither had they in the ship with them more than one law. And you remember here in verse 15, he said, "...take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod." And they reasoned among themselves, saying, "...it's because they have no bread." Now, the Lord had to clear that up for them. He said, "...I'm talking about the teaching." And you see, leaven is used for wrong and evil teaching in Scripture. It's never used for the gospel. That's one of the fallacious things that said today that somehow or another that leaven represents the gospel in the parable where our Lord said the woman took three measures of meal. Now, there's the gospel, but in it was hidden here the leaven, and leaven shouldn't have been in it. It is a process of making something taste good to the natural man. Actually, what is liberalism? It all came into existence by the pulpit trying to please the unsaved church member. And today we have a lot of men that try to please the congregation, even when they're unsaved. And that, may I say, is putting leaven in, because the only kind of bread they're going to eat is that which is leaven. The leaven makes bread taste good. I was brought up on hot biscuits, friends. I know they're good, and the natural man likes that. And I don't care for unleavened bread. But the Word of God, that is the real unleavened bread. Now, I must say, I like it. And then the evil is the leaven that's put in it. And that's the thing that he's doing here. And he warns them, and he tells them that they are to beware of this. Don't have your heart hardened. Have it open to the gospel. And he says to them in verse 18, "...having eyes see ye not, having ears hear ye not, and do ye not remember." And I've been a preacher a long time, friends, and sometimes I discover something startles me, that some person that you think knows spiritual truths, they miss the entire thought. They don't get it at all. You wonder where they've been. And there are people that have been studying the Bible for years that are like that. Now, remember, these men were apostles. And he then tells them, "...when I break the five loaves among five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took you up? They send him twelve. And when the seven among the four, how many baskets? And they say seven. He said unto them, How is it that you do not understand that the Word of God is the bread of life? And the Word of God reveals him. And so it means to feed on him. 
and to beware of leaven. I think that ought to be clear to us here in the teaching that he gives. Now we have this wonderful incident down here at verse 22, and I think that we've gone about as far in this matter of the feeding of the 4,000, and very frankly, we'll be coming back to the feeding of the 5,000 again in Luke and then again in John, and so we're going into a great deal of detail at that time. Now, in verse 22, he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And notice now this incident here of the blind man, and this is another one of these remarkable instances here. You see, he assented to the request but touching his eyes. But observe that Jesus led him out of town, had Bethsaida, where many of his mighty works had been performed, become like Nazareth, where he no longer could perform mighty works. Now, our Lord uses a peculiar method here, and there's actually no medicinal value in saliva, but it is to increase the faith of this man. And I think there's a great spiritual truth here, and let me read this, and then let's look at the spiritual truth. And I read it. He took the blind man by the hand, led him out of town, And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes, made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. You see this place, Bethsaida, already has judgment pronounced upon it. Now, there's something here that we need to look at very carefully. First of all, the question arises, why did he use this method? Couldn't he have opened the eyes of this man as he did in other instances? Yes, he could have. And he could have made the man see clearly at the very beginning. Why didn't he? Well, there's a lesson for the man, but there's a lesson here for us. Now, there are three stages in this case. Notice them. First, blindness. Now, we are first spiritually blind. Like the blind man, we can say, once I was blind, but now I can see. Now, you'll notice here he had partial sight. And only Mark tells us this. And Mark is the one of the miracles. Why would he give this? Is this not our condition today? Now we see through a glass darkly but then face to face. And I don't care who you are, where you are. Every now and then I get a letter from some person who gives me to understand that they have great spiritual discernment and that they are way up there with the upper ten. I don't know why they seem to think I belong there, but I have a confession to make to you. I only see through a glass darkly. There are so many things I don't understand. And I think that that's where we all are today. Now, I think some people don't realize that. They feel like, my, I know all of the things that you're to know. Well, that's one of the curses of some of our fundamental churches. I have been pastor of a church for a great many years. I have members that never bothered to come to Bible study. And you know why, friends? They already know more than I know. And I'm not sure maybe they do know. But the thing that's tragic about them is... 
that they think they know when they really don't know. And they do not realize that. Socrates, in his day, made this statement. He said that he was the wisest of the Athenians. And that shocked everybody because he was a very humble man. And they asked him what he meant. Well, he said, you know, that there are a great many of the Athenians that think they know. And I know I do not know. And since I know that I do not know, I'm the wisest of the Athenians. <laughs> May I say to you, a lot of the saints today think they know. But there is this state where we are today. And Paul could say, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. I sure be glad when I get over there where I'm going to know something. Now, perfect sight is the third stage. We'll get our 2020 spiritual vision when we get in his presence. And that's when we're going to really be able to see. And you'll notice our Lord healed this man, though, perfectly when he had finished. And there's something here that I don't have time today to develop. But have you ever noticed the different methods that he used in opening eyes of the blind? In one of the incidents, that blind man here at Bethsaida, Jesus touched his eyes, and this man had an experience. And I imagine that he organized the Methorene Church, and they sang the touch of his hand on mine. And then blind Bartimaeus, you remember, Jesus didn't touch him at all. He just told him from a distance. Faith alone opened his eyes. And I suppose he organized the Congretarian Church. And they sang, of course, only believe. Now, the man born blind was told to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And that's an entirely different method, according to John 9. And this man probably, he organized the Siloam Baptist Church. And they sang, Shall we gather at the river? You say, that's absurd. It sure is absurd for that day. But today, they're sure doing the same thing. May I say to you, what a lesson is here. Now we have Peter's confession of faith. I dwelt on that with a great deal of detail back yonder in the Gospel of Matthew, and I do not want to repeat too much. But will you notice the important thing here is, who is Jesus? Who is he? What think you of Christ is the test. To try both your state and your scheme, you cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. And friends, to be united to him, joined to him, is the important thing, and to enjoy a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I think the finest thing Simon Peter ever did was when he said, Thou art the Christ. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew, you see, gives the full account. Now we have here the thing that our Lord deals with at verse 34. When he'd call the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world, lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also 
shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture that we have here. The Lord Jesus did not reveal his person apart from his work of redemption. You'll always notice that. Back in verse 31, he had said, when they recognized him, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, elders and the chief priests, be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, he puts here not a condition of salvation, but it's the position of those that are saved that he's talking about. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me. What kind of a Christian are you today? Are you the one that acknowledges him and serve him and attempt to glorify him? My friend, that is all important in these days in which we live.